Hello, welcome to the Science for Policy podcast. My name's Toby and today I'm joined by Sana Zakaria and Tim Mahler, both of RAND Corporation. Sana is a research leader at RAND Europe, where she leads on policy research into science and innovation issues, focusing particularly on emerging technologies. Her expertise and interests are in areas such as, and I'm going to read this off the page because I'm not honestly sure what some of these mean, genomic medicine, neuromodulation, AI-based therapeutics, agri-food and tech, and the intersection of technologies like AI and synthetic biology. Meanwhile, Tim is a senior research engineer at the Rand Corporation in the US and professor at the Pardee Rand Graduate School. His work revolves around emerging technologies too and science and technology policy with a focus on, here we go again, multi-objective optimization, human modeling and simulation, advanced training technology, virtual and augmented reality, machine learning, biotechnology and human-centered design. So, Sana and Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank it's you. Great to be here. I think that's probably the coolest and most science fiction sounding list of research interests I've ever heard, for, at least from real life people. Um, perhaps I should be embarrassed how much more interesting you both are than this boring podcast. <laughs> I'm sure that's not true. I mean, I could pick anything off the list, really, but just to pick a random example, Sana, what is neuromodulation? Um, neuromodulation is interfacing between a human brain and a computer device, and it can be either one-way connection or a two-way connection where the computer reads your brain signals, but it can also send signals your way um, to do all kinds of things, whether it's for entertainment purposes or for medical purposes. All right. Well, of course, the danger is that we immediately get diverted from talking about what we're supposed to be talking about into talking about these really uh, fun sounding areas of cutting edge science. But let's try not to do that right now. Um, is everyone who works at Rand Corporation, which, by the way, sounds kind of sinister to my European ears, it's a little bit Blade Runner. But is everyone there into these kind of futuristic topics? Or is it just you two? You know, uh, a lot of what Rand does uh, is in, reflected in what you mentioned with our backgrounds as being sort of multidisciplinary and varied. So Rand is on a high level fundamentally uh, a nonpartisan research organization uh, that strives to inform policy and decision makers. Um, sort of more specifically, uh, it's it's one part think tank, one part consultancy, and one part uh, graduate program on public policy. And, and the work that RAND does can vary from military applications with health of soldiers or warfighters, looking across the Air Force, the Army, uh, national security in general, to um, healthcare, which is one of RAND's largest divisions, to education and labor, uh, to social and economic well-being. Um, more specifically, it's composed of multidisciplinary teams across a broad spectrum of, of problems and challenges. Must admit, it's a very interesting and fun place to work. Okay, that's a very helpful kind of broad overview. Um, but given the particular range of topics that you were both interested in, why is RAND interested in these topics in particular? So it has a lot to do with impact, the kind of impact that an individual wants to have. Um, and, and I think the impact that RAND has can be not necessarily at a better or worse level, but at a higher level and can be uh, substantive. 
the motivation really uh, stems from helping people, improving, informing decision making and, and policy. Okay. And for the specific topics that we're going to talk about today, which is this coming together of uh, machine learning and gene editing, why are these a focus for RAND? What's the kind of policy output expected here? It's a complicated topic. Uh, and, and there's really a need to inform the public in the absence of understanding or, or knowledge. There can be fear, but also to inform policymakers who might not have a background in machine learning, but yet have to set, set policy. So there's a real need to help uh, inform people um, and to think about risks and opportunities now rather than uh, after, the, after the fact. Um, but in general, I would say why work on this? You just, you want to help make communities uh, throughout or across the world better and help improve lives. Okay. So tell me about the work you're doing on this particular topic. So gene editing and machine learning combined. Um, so we did something very cool in which we looked at um, two distinct technology sectors. So AI and encompassing machine learning and gene editing, we kind of looked at the technology and policy trends over time. So going back 20, 30 years, um, starting from, um, you know, the um, actually much longer than that, starting from the 50s in some respects, and looking at how technologies and policies have developed over time, how they've interacted with one another, and arriving at um, these intersection of technologies and the state of the art to look at what's been made possible now um, by bringing together machine learning and gene editing. And so we surfaced also in looking at this interconnectedness of policies and technology catalyzation, the different types of policy instruments and styles that have been used over time and the kind of interesting domino effect across multiple geographies and technology sectors of one action in one geography in one tech area and what it can do in other areas. We also created a game with key experts, devised policy interventions to think about how do we leverage tech, how do we reduce risks. We really arrived at creating some really future-focused principles on how policies can be developed to mitigate the risks from emerging novel technologies and leveraging the opportunities from the tech as well. Okay, I'd like to drill down into some of those things you just said, because they all sound really quite interesting. Um, but firstly, just to be clear in my own mind, it, it, you were less doing original research on these topics and more looking into how the research that's been done might influence policy, right? Um, it's a little bit of both, but primarily focused on how um, this can inform policy, because ultimately that's what we'd like to do. And, um, you know, a little bit of the primary research was focused on, well, what's the state of the art? What can it do? Because that is very much um, the context and the grounding within which you need to consider policies from. And you mentioned as part of this work, inventing a game. Yeah. That sounds fun. What was that about? It was the sort of latter half of, of this work and um, the overall approach and process. And we've used something like this for, for other technologies um, to look at, okay, what's the state of the art? Where is machine learning? Where is gene editing? Then to look at when you combine these, what are the challenges uh, and where are the advancements? But what does that mean practically? What can that do for somebody when they go to work or get up in the morning? Then given that, you, you start to think about what are the risks and opportunities. So you go through those steps. Then you say, okay, now we want to test that. 
So that's when this game or tabletop exercise comes in. And when you talk about gaming in this context, it's, it's really different ways to have a structured discussion with experts. Um, and that might involve a game actual board where you are playing a game, but that facilitates a discussion or other sorts of things. So, so what we did was to bring in different types of experts. So we wanted technical folks that really understood the science. We wanted folks that understood China and US and UK. And we wanted folks that, that had some understanding of policy as well. So then given that initial work uh, on state-of-the-art challenges, opportunities, we lay out futures, scenarios. So um, generally in a 2040, 2045 timeframe, what do we think life with machine learning and gene editing could, could look like? Um, and what would drive that? What are the drivers? What are the things that would make a difference politically, economically, socially, et cetera? So we lay out these uh, scenarios and then we break into teams and you have some folks represent uh, China, some folks represent EU, and some folks represent the US. Given these scenarios, they kind of go off and talk and decide what policies would they enact? What do they need to do to be prepared for, react, or anticipate these different types of futures. So you don't know what the future is going to hold. If it could be one of these three things, what would you do to, to prepare for the eventuality? Then they join back together, a bit like you, you would see in the real world, um, where the EU might decide a policy or decide a direction, and then they say, oh, well, wait a second. If this is what the U.S. is doing, or if this is what's going on in China, we might react or adapt. And so we did the same thing. Bring everybody back together. Let's talk about this, see what's going on. Now separate and decide what your governments would do and what your scientists would do and sort of refine your policies. And then reconvene and see, okay, where are we at? What directions did these different organizations take? So it was a way, again, to bring uh, a structured conversation with all these different types of experts and, and parse it or think about it through the lens of different geographies, different cultures, but also different technologies. Um, and there's, frankly, I don't think there's enough of that done on the international level, the cross-technology level. Um, so it was really, it was an interesting process to go through. It was helpful here. And I think the same kind of process is, it's scalable. It's applicable to different, different technologies. That is really interesting. So this idea of gamification actually we've talked about before on this podcast um as a way to kind of make clear and immediate to policymakers and to other stakeholders what a particular new technology or policy objective or societal change will mean so it's a way of kind of generating implications in people's minds from the inside as it were so good but then it also sounds like you're going one step further because if i'm understanding you right you're not just talking about using it as a communications tool to like convey in concrete personal terms the outcomes of research but also as a kind of research tool itself so you get out of that game some new knowledge some research results that you wouldn't otherwise be able to derive absolutely absolutely um like during this well we had a certain structure kind of um a scorecard that these different teams would fill out like what would you do for this kind of scenario with regards to this topic. Um, 
So th- that had sort of a game feel to it. But the the real value is the discussion. Within each of those teams, we had a, a note taker, a recorder, um, and the kinds of issues that people bring up, the kinds of discrepancies or, or debates that go on, that's the, I mean, that's the gold that you don't necessarily get from a literature review or even bench research. Right, makes sense. I think it might be helpful before we talk much more about the science to policy work, it might be helpful for the audience that might not be so familiar with these topics, if you could kind of give us an outline of what the content is, what is the most recent research, what's the state of play with both gene editing and machine learning and indeed how they fit together. Um, Yeah, sure. So I'll take uh, gene editing. So I guess simply put, it's manipulation of genetic material of uh, living organisms And gene editing has gone on for a very long time. So, you know, these tools and discoveries, they've progressed quite substantively over the decades since the 60s onwards. But we have had um, really notable milestones. So we've we've sequenced the entire human genome. We cloned the first mammal, Dolly the sheep, if people might recall that uh, moment in time. Um, uh, and then, you know, we've got the discovery of CRISPR-based gene editing tools or um, better known as genetic scissors. And so these capabilities have become faster and cheaper over time. And just to get, bring it to life, I guess some examples of what they have enabled um, at the moment, it's things like treating cancers, treating inherited diseases, um, development of pest-resistant, climate-resistant crops, just to name a few things. And of course, when you talk about benefits you also have to talk about risks you have to talk about barriers and some of those things um, that currently are being talked about and tackled are things like lack of diversity in genomic data sets so um, and how that might perpetuate um, or exacerbate inequalities and bias um, in the work that we do or uh, things like false positives and um, most interestingly I suppose Um, the risk of dual use by what we call non-state actors for dangerous or unethical purposes with um, genetic um, tools. Hmm. What are you thinking of when you say that? Is this like bad actors engineering synthetic diseases and so on? Yeah, absolutely. So engineered diseases or like, you know, hacking into genomic databases. So data is currency, right? So you've got more and more genomic data, more links to um, people's outcomes. And that can be used for multiple purposes like biohacking, um, for instance. Okay. So that's helpful. Thanks. That's the gene editing part. What about machine learning? So interestingly, machine learning, which is part of uh, AI, uh, as a slightly less clear definition. That is to say, if you were asked 10 people, what's AI, you'd probably get 10 slightly different uh, answers. Fundamentally, AI refers to simulating intelligence that stems from mathematical models and help to make decisions. It's, it's a branch of computer science that deals with simulation of intelligent behavior. Or uh, another definition is a capability of a machine to imitate intelligent human behavior. That latter one is probably the, the the scariest one. AI is is broader. It's not the same as machine learning. So if you think about intelligence, there are different aspects of it, and and the same applies to AI. There's the gathering of information through your hands, your eyes, your ears, gathering that data. There's the storing uh, and and parsing of that data in your brain, memory. Um, and then there's the connecting the dots to look at that information and realize, well, I touched the fire before, so I won't do that again in the future. 
Um, and generally, generally, that's what machine learning is. So it takes that data um, and then interpolates or extrapolates it, given a little bit of information about what was said at this conversation. Um, could I conceptually plot a line through that and extract some information, the main themes or what they might talk about tomorrow if they were to keep talking? The applications are, are broad. Uh, and I think there's a need to distinguish between AI, machine learning, the capability, the science, and the applications. I like to say, and this is actually true right now, that machine learning is being used to vacuum my floor as we speak with a Roomba. And sometimes it runs over the, the, the base of the coffee table and various folks in the family get very upset about this and want to fire uh, the, the AI. <laughs> um, it's also also used for facial recognition. ChatGPT is a hot topic, um, and its ability to write a paper, image generation, virtual assistants like Alexa, all of these things. Uh, like gene editing, it's dual use. It can do some good. It can do some bad. Uh, there was um, a case of AI-generated, like a deep fake, AI-generated explosion near the Pentagon. And that actually correlated to a dip in the stock market. It wasn't real, but it, it really looked real. Um, there can be inherent biases. So machine learning, for the most part, is only as good as the data. You're only as smart as sort of what you learned, generally. So if you have discriminating data or imperfect data, that will have consequences in terms of the results. There's some literature that suggests there is or a risk of Dependence on AI uh, resulting in a degradation of creative capabilities in some capacity. So there's tons of good, tons of bad. I like to say that uh, cars kill millions of people, um, but they sure do save a lot of lives as well. And they've been very beneficial. I think the same applies here. Yeah, thanks. So uh, those are two very useful introductions to two interesting topics. My remaining question on the content side is, why do we put them together? I mean, why are they in the same area of work for you? Aren't they very different topics? Um, so I'm going to use the analogy of Lego here. Um, but if you think about Lego, um, so there's these basic building blocks um, that you can put together in multiple different formats. But then you've got um, your Star Wars characters and you've got your Frozen characters and all kinds of things. And you can create new universes and add on and bolt on things. And all of a sudden, a whole new world opens up. So I think you can think about these technologies in a similar way is that machine learning um, models and gene editing tools are these baseline capabilities and they can be brought together, um, applied to the existing data and tools and be used in this kind of modular fashion in a very niche setting for a very niche purpose, right? So they can be adapted to different situations and applications, which is why they have um, a vast swathe of applications that are still being uncovered. So it's one of those things where, you know, new things emerge every day. Um, and so I think especially spurred by the fact that, you know, probably from 2016 onwards, we've seen a real catalyzation in these technologies coming together. So, and it's not just true for machine learning and gene editing. You see this in AI, broader AI use cases, 5G, wider bits of biotechnology sector, quantum um, so there's all of these convergence going on. And so what we have done is focused in on this particular and quite broad use case of machine learning being applied to gene editing. And really what we're seeing is that machine learning 
um, computational algorithmic capabilities being applied to biological data sets is really advancing um, faster processing, um, gaining us efficiencies, generating predictions, predictive assessments that were just not possible before. And so um, right now, we're seeing a lot of these technologies at the intersection being trialed in the health sector, but there's also a lot of emerging applications in the climate sector and agriculture, and a lot in the national security and defense setting as well. So I think there's a real case to be made for studying these things more and more collectively and holistically at this convergence. And if I if I may add on that, I think um, there's not a lot, as we mentioned before, there's not a lot of that formal systematic research done uh, that looks at what happens when technologies combine. You tend to look at what's going on, what could go happen with hypersonics, with quantum, et cetera. Uh, but where it becomes particularly challenging, but particularly impactful, is when these things combine. And even just AI by itself uh, is, is a combination of some of the things I mentioned, but just in recently, relatively recently, you have this confluence of new algorithms or improved algorithms, computer power, and massive amounts of data and accessibility to it. You put those three topics, which are arguably different fields, uh, perhaps within computer science or even more broadly than that, put those together and you've got a substantial impact. You bring in gene editing, bring in quantum, et cetera, et cetera. And that's where these things really compound. It gets exciting, but it's very complex. And I don't think enough folks are are looking at it through this multidisciplinary lens. Yeah, one question I often think about with these topics, because these topics are, I mean, both of them very much in the public eye, either right now at the moment in the case of AI or over the last 10 or 15 years in the case of genetic editing. I do wonder whether you as experts kind of have your head in your hands a bit about the state of the public debate, what people know, what issues people are focusing on, um, you know, among non-experts, or whether you think the debate is is what is the, is where it needs to be, is going how it needs to go. And this is relevant because, of course, when you're coming to talk to policymakers and other stakeholders relevant to policy, they will draw as much or more on the public debate as they will on the scientific state of knowledge. So what's your sense of how that feels at the moment? How's it going? Um, there's a lot of hype. I think there's a lot of hype with any new technology, with any new capability, and there's a formal hype cycle that you go through where everybody gets excited and then it dwells down and then you have sort of a steady state of perception or concern about these things. Um, I, I think most of the non-technical public, as you would expect, does not truly understand what's the scope of gene editing, what can and can't be done. What's the scope of machine learning? Is it going to take over the world tomorrow, um, or, or, or is it more limited than that? And I think when you have that lack of understanding, and there's some desire for knowledge, you grasp on to the headlines. If you're thirsty enough in the desert, you drink sand. Um, and I think that can happen sometimes. So that can lead to an imperfect debate. Uh, and and hopefully we're we're addressing some of that. Um, there's definitely a growing need for researchers, practitioners, engineers, scientists to communicate not just with their peers. Historically, that was the mode. You write a, a journal paper, uh, you get accolades for that, and your peers will read it. 
there is now a growing need to communicate outside your peer group, to explain what these things mean to somebody who's outside this field. Um, I think machine learning and gene editing, uh, they can revolutionize many different things that we've touched on, but the public engagement and perception are, are critical here. Um, and I, I don't think uh, that has been addressed as, as fully as it, it should be. That's, I think that's where things stand. But I think people are starting to appreciate what does this mean, what can these things do, uh, and what can they do for me. I think there's less of an understanding of where the limits are, um, what can and can't be done. Yeah, I can see that. I think in addition to the debate, this gets into workforce development and education as well. There's a need uh, as technologies emerge and become more pervasive to think about how will high school education change? How will college education change? Um, and, and sort of non-advanced uh, education as well, workforce development. Especially when you talk about machine learning, AI, there's a concern that that's going to um, eliminate jobs. Uh, it might, it likely will, but it will also create some new jobs. So how do you continuously retrain folks to, to adapt to these technologies as they move and grow? And what's interesting is they're moving and growing faster. If you think about trade school maybe being a couple years or a typical undergraduate degree being four years, technology is advancing faster than just four years. So how do we adapt to help the public train and understand these things as they change? I think one um, really live, um, I guess, example of um, some of these things that we've just talked about is this um, new study that just came out on what we call embryo model systems, where in a lab, an embryo-like structure was developed without using sperm cells or egg cells, which is kind of your basic biology that you learn growing up, right? You need a sperm and an egg and you get an embryo. That's no longer true, uh, at least in the lab setting. So that came out and everywhere you just heard this scientists playing God, scientists creating human life in the lab. And that was far from the truth. So I think sometimes there's a massive um, dissonance between, like Tim said, what's possible and what's being talked about. Obviously, the media has a role to play here. Policymakers have a role to play here. But the education piece, um, like it, I guess it really comes to the fore, is some of these technologies are going to change the doctrine of biology, for instance, that we've been taught about. And the same is true for machine learning. So I think there is a need to kind of backtrack and sort of look at what we're learning, what we're teaching, how we're responding to these things overall at a more kind of system level. Yeah, well, exactly. And one reason I wanted to ask that question was because the system we have now, that's the system in which policymakers are working. So the level of understanding and familiarity that with the state of the science that you're describing is quite often the level that policymakers themselves have, or even if not, it's the level they have to engage with when they're thinking about their constituents and their kind of room to manoeuvre politically. So what kinds of decisions are policymakers facing right now in these areas and how well equipped are they really to make those decisions? Oh, um, <laughs> Don't quite know where to begin. There's a lot um, for policymakers to ponder over, no doubt. I think it you know, ranges from 
how and when to regulate the technology across its value chain, right? Do you do it upstream at the point of um, uh, really high uh, at the data set level or algorithmic level, or do you do it at the application level? How do you collaborate internationally? So where do you compete and where do you um, collaborate and cooperate? Um, how do you communicate all of these things to your constituents? Um, and how do you kind of ensure that policy is agile and can keep pace with the technical progress and development? And then, you know, on top of all of that, you have to think about um, regulating these things without stifling innovation because you can't just say, well, we're not going to do anything and that's it because somebody else will. And also you're, there's an opportunity cost involved here because you're losing out on um, huge benefits for society. So I think there's quite a lot for um, policymakers to contend with. So are these areas where scientific evidence can help? And do policymakers have access to that evidence and uh, do they understand it? So, you know, we definitely need um, the scientific evidence, but there are other bits of evidence that are required. Uh, you know, for example, geopolitics, international dynamics, economics, um, costs and benefits, what are the risks involved? So there's a huge array of um, other types of evidence that's required to inform policy. So scientific evidence is just one part of the equation, I would say. And um, really, there needs to be more holistic risk and opportunity assessments. Um, you know, we're not just focusing on scientific research per se, but also on how some of this research is communicated to the public and to policymakers as well. Because we have seen time and time again that the public can actually hold great power to sway policies as well. Uh, we, see, we see this play out, you know, when it comes to things like agricultural policy and how people engage with their food and the food system, for instance. So, yeah, scientific research and evidence is great, but it's just one part of the jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, and I hear what you're saying, and there does seem to be a big geopolitical angle here, which Tim was also talking about earlier when he was talking about the geopolitical game. But a lot of the things you just mentioned about communication and public understanding and geopolitics and the right way to make policies and so on, these strike me as areas where good scientific evidence can help too. Different kinds of sciences, maybe. Social sciences and economics and, I don't know, behavioural sciences and political sciences. When I asked if politicians have the evidence they need, I didn't just mean kind of facts about what AI is and what genetic editing can do right now. I also meant kind of expert guidance from research about how to try to govern the interplay between these things and society at large. Yeah, absolutely. That's totally fair. But I think there is... Um... I think there's a real lack of how do you take that evidence and then implement it? How do you operationalize it into the very complex and convoluted system within which we operate? You know, and, and there have been studies, and obviously our study is one part of the equation, but you can propose um, things where policymakers can say, okay, well, this is how you do a holistic risk assessment where you look at risks, but as well as benefits of technology, or these are the policymaking styles that you can adapt to, et cetera. But actually turning it into reality is um, not easy because that's where you go into operations. Um, but definitely, I think all of this research helps and policymakers need it because they need this um, expert advice and empirical evidence to act on. Well, just a couple examples when you asked about sort of what decisions have to be made. Um, you know, Sana and, 
early on talked about neuromodulation or brain-computer interfaces. Um, in the U.S., the Department of Commerce has to think about what aspects of this technology uh, can be exported or imported. And you say, okay, I don't want to bring into this country or I don't want to source uh, this particular aspect of a brain-computer interface from a different country. Um, that somebody could track that. There might be some risks there to national security. All right, that sounds fine. But then you've got some researchers at a university or some doctors that say, well, if I can't get that technology, that piece, I can't make the system that's helping people treat Parkinson's so that they can do their job once again. That's a real trade-off. Another example closer to the work we did has to do with data. We mentioned that machine learning depends intimately on the data that it trains on. Some of that data or a lot of that data might be uh, genetic information. So when you send um, you know, your saliva to 23andMe to see what's my, my family history, where does that information get tested? Who has access to my personal DNA and then stores it, potentially someday using it for a different reason? Well, should we say nobody can fill out those tests because that information might get outside of our country? Or do you take a looser stance? And uh, both ends of that spectrum are being executed today by different, by different countries. So those are some concrete areas where you've got to decide how restrictive do you want to be. Um, again, with data and AI, there's a lot of discussion now. Should we start to regulate this more tightly? Um, should everybody with a supercomputer at a certain level be regulated, tracked in, in some fashion because they could really do some advanced things with machine learning? Or should we not far focus on the hardware and focus on data? What data is tracked, regulated, and at what level? Those are some of the, the, the decisions that policymakers have to make. And if you imagine having to make those decisions, and perhaps you've got a background in law, Perhaps you've got a, a life experience in politics. You don't necessarily know the details of this kind of stuff that's required. So that's that, that's a bridge that that has to be crossed, I think. Yes. Though it seems like with the kinds of decisions we're now talking about, you know, should we allow my DNA information to go outside my country or how do we balance up health benefits versus national security risks of a certain policy or a certain technology. These things are heavily dependent on the facts, for sure, but they are also value judgments. So you have to be well informed before you can make the call. But then even once you are totally informed, you still have to make the call, right, using your values. And so for these questions, which can't be settled on their own with objectivity and evidence, do you think there's any role there for expert advice, for science advice, if you like, to help out? Or do policymakers have to look elsewhere for the inspiration, let's say, for their decision making? You know, a bit of this is my personal opinion. I think um, one of the challenges is, um, depending on the kind of policymaker you're talking about, they often have to respond to a constituency. They have to do what their constituency needs or wants. Um, so you, you often have to play between okay, what do I know? Let me go do some research, read that report and, and do what's best. But let me also listen to my constituency who has some, that might have some really grave concerns, whether warranted or not, you know, this single congressperson is not going to inform all of them 
so I'm going to sway towards uh, maybe a more conservative uh, regulation. So they have to balance. But I, th I think most folks know, all right, I don't understand how a neural network works. So you'll have a panel, you'll have some research, some discussion. Is that sufficient? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Yeah. On this issue of being pulled in different directions, you know, you might have the scientific evidence, but you might have your constituency, as you mentioned. You might also have economic considerations or international norms and agreements or all of the kinds of complexities of the type that Sana was talking about. And you have your own moral compass, right? And these things can all pull policymakers in different directions. And especially when the issue is very divisive or very controversial, which it seems to be in this case, both with gene editing and machine learning, Policymakers can end up feeling like they don't have much room to manoeuvre. You know, they're kind of pulled so tight in the middle that they can't really take on board the science advice. Like you said, they might have done their background reading and really understand the science. That doesn't mean the same is true for their constituents or other entities. And they still have to answer to those other entities. I was just going to I was just going to bring in an example. Um, so I think. Um... I think there's a bit of, there is some room to maneuver, but it's very challenging. And I think, you know, it's, it sounds like a broken record, but it goes back to kind of system level change in education and kind of moving um, all of these various things along over a long period of time in terms of discourse. Sometimes you don't have the luxury of that time, but if you look at um, gene editing technologies in the agriculture space, um, for instance, now, um, the, uh, Americans, uh, North America, South America have been eating gene editing crops for a long time, right? And there's a lot of scientific evidence underpinning that. Um, but then in Europe, you have the narrative that, oh, we, we're not sure we can do that uh, because there isn't a lot of scientific evidence. Uh, well, actually, there is a lot of scientific evidence, but the real um, reason for not moving forward on that is, um, you know, there's a whole economic argument to it. There's a whole market argument to it. People are resistant to that change in that lifestyle because there's a lot of um, conservative values um, embedded in those parts of society. Now, um, the UK has recently changed its stance and just passed the Genetic Precision Breeding Act. And that means that there's going to be all kinds of field trials going on in the UK developing crops via gene-edited techniques. And because of these political drivers and economic conditions and climate change, that has driven the EU to reconsider its stance. And it's now currently reviewing its policies and it's looking at proposing new gene editing techniques to be separated from the real lock and key of the GMO directive. So I think um, there is some room to maneuver. Um, there is scientific evidence there. But it sometimes takes a really long time and it has to be a combination of scientific evidence, correct political conditions, economic conditions and public discourse and public acceptability to move the dial on the policy itself. You know, one of the things that Sana touched on, perhaps indirectly, that came out of our study was the necessity to consider different styles of, of policymaking. Um, in many cases, the policy is reactive. I've got an outcry from constituency, so I need to address this today. I'm going to do something. In in other cases that I think uh, Sana alluded to, there can be a, a vacuum. There's no immediate policy, so I'm going to use what we have. I'm going to use a legacy policy. And that can happen without crosswalking that legacy policy with current needs. Um, and then once you do that, you might realize, okay, 
now I've got to update that policy or I need a new policy. So there are different approaches to this and it actually um, should be considered as, as a life cycle. As these things mature, you take a different approach to, to policies. It sounds like a very interesting area to be working in right now. Yeah, ab absolutely. Engineers might say, uh, tech is easy, people are hard, right? <laughs> and it's, it, it's holistically like the, that capability or that iPhone it doesn't do much good just sitting on your desk. There's that interface and that interface could be a user interface, what you touch when. It could be perceptions, what you think about it and thus how you act. Um, and again, touching on, as Sana said, the, the systems approach, you've got to look at all of that. I think it's um, also a really, um, it's a really cool place to be in. It's also a really hard place to be in because you have to cut through the noise to get to the people who can take what you've done and turn it into sort of something that's valuable. Um, you know, so you're, you're trying to advise policymakers in these areas where there's a lot of controversy, but there's a lot of saturation of um, voices coming through as well. And I think, you know, like we said, evidence is just one part of the equation, but I think what we really have to do is then tailor that evidence to the specific needs of that time of that policymaker by putting it into context, linking it to the key priorities of the time, like whether they're economic or health or clean energy. And I think that's sort of the key. And I would say somewhat a bit of an art rather hmm. than a science, really. And, you know, what complicates that is you can perhaps you somehow address that art. You get a solution for that time, that policymaker. But then you consider additional geographic locations, different states, different countries. Now you've gotten into different value systems, different cultures. You know, there might be just as much focus on ethics in a different country, but it's defined differently. So now the system just hit another level of, of complexity on how do we look at all of this on, on an international level? Right, yeah. So where is your policy advice directed, actually? Who makes these decisions and, and who do you need to speak to? Is it national politicians or is the right governance level the regional one or the global one? Because some of those levels are more structured and easier to engage with than others. I think Tim will have more to say on this, but the only thing I'll, I'll say perhaps is that what we found in our study um, was a really interesting role that's played by these organizations, what we call these supranational organizations. So one is that, yes, there's a clear question um, around what is the relevance and utility of these types of organizations at this point in time now, where perhaps there is less structure, less influence, and what's the ability of these organizations to influence national agendas and plans at the moment, probably very limited. Um, but what these organizations have done over time when we did this kind of approach of mapping trends and policies over time is that they played a really unique role where there was a national vacuum in certain technology areas where um, gene editing was advancing or AI was advancing and reaching specific technology milestones. There weren't any standards or frameworks or self-regulation mechanisms in some countries. And so it's these international organizations that kind of almost self-formed and grouped together to develop these frame frameworks and guide the scientific and the academic community to actually take the work forward within certain ethical parameters. Um, and so they've played a really key role. But as, as these things progress and kind of develop further, of course, 
these organizations then sometimes get left behind, say, well, we've got this initial legacy framework, but how do we now develop and ensure that people still relate to this very broad framework and take it up? Um, So I think the organizations play a key role, but there is definitely a question around how they could play an even more important role now uh, and be brokers of this kind of international collaboration dynamic. Yeah. When we talk about these inter- these organizations, this this is referring to what we call international brokers. So this is a different type of organization than, say, a, a state or a government. Things like the World Health Organization, the UN, Gates Foundation, these sorts of organizations, and even ad hoc consortia that that fill that vacuum, as Sana say, where there's no policy or there's no mechanism for fluid communication. Um, so. You ask where are we directing our our policy or where are we directing sort of our recommendations in our in that regard? I think that that's one mechanism for improvement are these international brokers. These organizations can be more nimble, and I think it's incumbent upon states and governments to strive to be more nimble as well. Like we said, there's there's a need now to move policy faster to keep up uh, with the technology. That again gets back to the education, the communication, uh, and just being able to move faster. I think, um, at least in the U.S., certain parts of the government were designed to be slow, um, to take a time to think about uh, and not move too fast. We don't need to rework all of government, but we've got to think about dialing that in, that aspect in a bit um, for faster moving technology. Okay, yeah, absolutely. We have an audience that is interested in science for policy, but not necessarily uh, an expert in these particular areas. I mean, in general, not. Are there lessons do you think that we can take out of the discussion we've had, out of your experience of interfacing with the policymaking world in these particular very controversial and very current areas, um, which can be applied more broadly to the practice of evidence-informed policymaking? Um, there's a number of things. Uh, the the main ones that resonated with me were one, as we touched on, to assess technologies concurrently. Uh, you can't just you can't be so myopic just as to look at one. That's necessary, but it's not sufficient. You've got to look at the interplay of these technologies. You've got to consider both technologies and policy developments and cultures concurrently. So I guess a way to sum that up is the systems approach. Uh, The second thing that really resonated with me was thinking about um, the solution to these problems in terms of incentives. So how do you incentivize different countries to collaborate on the technology, which is relatively easy, and the policy, which is relatively difficult? Um, So what's in it for them? Uh, It could be a carrot, like money, it could be a stick if you're looking sort of within a government that says, you know, thou shalt or here's a law, you must do this. Um, or there could be softer uh, incentives, just like open communication, transparency. So you know, oh, if somebody's working on that, that's good to know. I can collaborate or or react accordingly. The third thing beyond sort of the systems approach and considering incentives. For, for collaboration coordination is education um, at all levels. This can applies not just to a senator or a congressman, 
um, or a prime minister, but uh, to high school students or, or even um, uh, more junior students. Uh, and then finally, like we mentioned earlier, when you think about policy, there are different styles. There's reactive, there's proactive, there's sort of the use of legacy policy. And I think the most appropriate policy depends on the state of affairs and the maturity and use of that technology. And policy development should, I don't think, should be viewed in sort of a static, static temporally uh, lens or through that lens. It's got to be looked at more holistically and over time that these policies will evolve as the technology changes. Yeah, I think um, Tim covered it quite comprehensively. I think the main um, thing for me to take away from this really is that um, lack of evidence at this intersection. And I think a lot of the um, current discourse, for example, around um, machine learning foundation models is focused on this kind of risk assessment approach on what are the risks, how do we stop it, which is a really valid thing to do. But there really isn't a lot of balanced discussion around, well, yes, these are the risks, but what are the benefits and how do we capitalize on these benefits whilst minimizing the risks? And I think that's what we've tried to do in our study is to kind of play back that very balanced view and balanced way of thinking about policies. And I think what's really needed is that balanced um, development of some kind of a framework um, to assess, you know, what is the opportunity cost here and also um, situate some of these developments in a more kind of socio-technical system um, where you don't um, disentangle the social and the economic and the political and the technical, but you actually bring it together. And at the moment, it feels very much like a siloed piecemeal approach um, that's been ongoing. Well, listening to the two of you talk and taking part in this conversation, um, I'm sure I'm not the only person listening who feels like I've learned an awful lot, including the fact that there is such a thing as Disney frozen Lego. Um, <laughs> so thank you both of you for, for sharing your time and expertise so generously. Likewise, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Yeah, pleasure. The Science for Policy podcast is created by the Scientific Advice Mechanism to the European Commission. It's produced and presented by Toby Wardman, with additional editing by Nina Skorczak. The Scientific Advice Mechanism provides evidence-based expertise and policy recommendations to inform policymaking in the European Commission. This podcast is funded by the EU via the SAPEA Consortium. Our theme music is composed by Carlo Alfredo Piatti and performed by Elisaveta Shushenko.